Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Make sure you're properly belted in and settled in for this stretch of our late-night journey. Driving through the back roads of New Mexico after midnight might seem picturesque, serene even. The arid landscape painted in hues of blue, moonlight playing off of the mesas and casting shadows from scattered Joshua trees. But as beautiful as it is to see, there's danger on the road that late at night especially when traveling alone. At first, it seems like it's maybe a puff of smoke hanging off in the distance, a small, inky blot on the otherwise empty horizon. But there's something odd about it. It's hard to put your finger on it. It seems to play tricks with your sight, to writhe and pulse, shrink and grow. You rub your tired eyes and blink rapidly to clear your vision. It must be just the strain of driving at night, right? Your eyes are dry, and it's blurring your vision. But your sight is clear, and you feel more alert than you have in hours. Your fingers tense on the steering wheel, as a feeling of unease begins to needle at your guts. You check the mirrors hoping for the comfort of another set of headlights on the road behind you. But there's nothing in the rear view but empty asphalt. Your foot falters on the pedal, unsure if you should let off the gas or put the throttle to the floor. The strange ball of ethereal mist or smoke is getting closer, hanging near the side of the road ahead of you. But its unsettling undulations make it hard to judge the distance. 
there's an intersection ahead, a crossroads. And from what you can tell, the stuttering mass is hanging right next to the junction. The closer you get to the crossroads, the clearer you can see the thing. It seems to have a strange, textured substance, almost like billowing black cloth or cotton. A growing sense of dread makes your foot heavy, and you speed up toward the intersection. You glance down at the speedometer, and when you look back at the road, relief floods through you for the briefest of seconds. And then suddenly, she's there in the road, a gnarled old woman dressed all in black, her long hair writhing in wisps around her. Despite the fear that grips you, instinct takes over and you slam on the brakes. Your car skids and screeches to a halt on the pavement. There was no impact, no thud of a body rolling under the wheels. But in front of you, your headlights catch only asphalt. And then she's there beside you, her shriveled skeletal face contorted in anger and hatred, stringy black hair swirling like tendrils of mist. She slams her gnarled hands on your window, talons screeching across the glass as she tries to snatch at you. You stare for a moment, frozen in terror, unable to move. Finally, your survival instinct kicks in and you hammer the gas. But as you pick up speed, the creature beside you keeps pace, almost effortlessly. She continues to scream at you from the other side of the glass, desperately trying to smash the window and tear you out through it. And for a moment, you're afraid she might succeed. But you finally start to gain ground to pull away from the creature until she fades into nothing more than a dark smudge in the rear view. Your heart pounds in your ears, and you don't let off the gas until you can see the safe, warm glow of civilization on the horizon. As terrifying as this ordeal was, though, the worst may be yet to come. There's death in your near future, you see your own, or someone close to you. Only time will tell. The legend of Lamala Hora, which translates to English as the evil hour, or sometimes the evil one, has been haunting the crossroads of New Mexico since at least the early 1900s, and likely a lot longer than that. It preys on those who dare to travel the countryside alone either attacking and suffocating its victims as a large, shape-shifting black mass, or, on rare occasions, manifesting as an old woman, whose appearance is said to be an evil omen. Either way, the outcome is death. So, if you're traveling the roads of New Mexico after nightfall, I'd suggest taking a friend. Because you never know who or what you'll meet at the crossroads. But let's get off of this road and onto some dark trails of our own, shall we? Our first story of the evening comes to us from Mike Thorne. Mike Thorne is the author of the short story collection Darkest Hours. His fiction has appeared in a number of magazines, anthologies, and podcasts, 
including Dark Moon Digest, The No Sleep Podcast, Dark Fuse, Unnerving Magazine, and Turn to Ash. And his film criticism has been published in Mubi Notebook, The Film Stage, The Seventh Row, Bright Lights Film Journal, and Vague Visages. You can visit his website, MikeThornWrites.com, and find him on Twitter, at MikeThornWrites. Join me, children of the night, for Mike Thorns at Gorgoyama 2013, a Tales to Terrify original. Victor scrolled and clicked, clicked and scrolled. Instagram was dead as usual. He clicked the heart icon for a big-eyed puppy, a friend's new guitar, and Rihanna's latest photo shoot. Facebook was also fruitless. He glanced over some long-ago acquaintance's ignorant political rant. He liked a photo that his Aunt Joan had posted from her tropical all-inclusive resort vacation. He hadn't spoken to her in at least a decade, but hey, a like on Facebook is a non-committal thing, right? Next came Bandcamp. A couple new plays, no new downloads. Victor's waking mind was feisty. Do you think maybe that's because you haven't written any new music in almost half a year? He shut the negative thoughts away, promptly closing the tab. He would get back to it. He just needed to let the inspiration strike. The first thing was getting sober. Check. He hadn't even smoked any weed or tobacco in a year, and it had been longer since he'd touched booze or coke the main culprits in his own pathetic little spiral. But that was the past. First came sobriety, then came clearer, sharper, and more consistent songwriting. Really, though? You really think so? Victor cleared his morning dry throat. It was about time he bought a small humidifier or something. With sobriety came a job. Thank God. So much basic expenses were no longer out of the question. Humidifier later, maybe. Now it's time for Twitter a website that always brought good vibes from Gorgoyama2013. Thanks to this mysterious and gracious tweeter, Victor's daily internet checklist had been significantly more satisfying this month. Gorgoyama2013 was engaged beyond the level of any of Victor's real friends or family, especially considering there were so few of those people left to talk to. What kind of music have you been listening to recently? Do your listening habits have an impact on your creative mindset? Gorgo asked yesterday. The day before that, your last song had such complex structure. Was that something you intended from the outset, or is your process more organic than that? When it was time to scan through his Twitter notifications, Victor was surprised to discover none. He always got at least one. A mention, a retweet, a like, comment. Nine times out of ten, at least one of these notifications would come courtesy of Gorgoyama2013 but Victor was proud to say that he occasionally got attention from other users as well. There was a blue one floating in the bottom left-hand corner of his private message inbox. Victor tied back his unkempt hair, slurped some coffee, and opened the message. Lo and behold, Gorgoyama2013 had finally decided to get a little bit more personal. Clutching a strap hanger with one hand and an open copy of the Temple of the Golden Pavilion in the other, 
Victor found himself unable to concentrate. Normally he savored the reading time that public transit afforded, but after rescanning the same sentence four times in a row without processing its meaning, he slipped the book back into his backpack and watched buildings flick by through the window ahead. Gorgoyama 2013's message, white font on blue background, scrawled across his mind like teleprompter text. Victor smiled to himself, indifferent to the skeptical stares of bus riders sitting nearby. Maybe he wasn't as prolific as he wanted to be. Heck, maybe his life wasn't yet everything he'd always dreamed. But he knew he had at least one real fan, and that was more than enough to warrant a smile. He almost missed his stop, pulling the bell cord at the last possible second. The driver braked hard, causing passengers to jolt forward in their seats. On his way out the door, Victor called, Have a great day! Walking toward alternate sound, he thought not of his cranky boss Kyle, nor of the eight boring hours that awaited him. He thought of Gorgoyama 2013's long and glorious ode to all things Victor Crawford, and he kept right on smiling. Victor left his shift 15 minutes early, indifferent to his boss's scathing glare. When he got home, he tugged off his boots without untying the laces. He dropped his backpack on the floor rather than stuffing it in the closet as he usually did. He was hungry, yeah, but his stomach's sounds of protest were quieter than the roaring voice in his head. Compose. Play. Create. An hour later, he found himself holding a hastily fried veggie dog in his left hand and typing twitter.com with his right. His earbuds flooded his head with the surprisingly somber tones of whatever he'd just channeled into his synthesizer. It was a sketch, obviously. There was only so much he could accomplish in a couple hours. But even still, it stirred that dormant presence curled up in his brain's most mysterious terrain. A presence that, in some half-conscious way, he'd been beginning to suspect was dead. Not dead at all, he thought. Thank you, Gorgo. Sometimes I've felt like I might die just from the pressure of living in this world, Gorgo had written. Sometimes I wake up thinking she's still there, but then I realize, of course, she isn't. She's been dead for a year now. And then I open my internet, and I read the news, and I see that world leaders are casually threatening nuclear war, that Nazis are openly preaching their beliefs again, that capitalism is swallowing the world whole. And then I go back to your page. I listen to a piece of your music, and I vibe. It might sound stupid, but it does something. Thank you, Victor. Even if you didn't mean to help me, you did, and you do. So thank you. Please keep creating. Keep recording. Okay, maybe not the most uplifting message in the world by all accounts. Victor had followed Gorgoyama 2013's tweets during the grieving process, had been shocked and even a little pained to learn that this internet acquaintance had suffered the loss of a spouse at such a young age. But he, Victor, had created something that had helped someone, that had changed someone. He went to his room, slipped in bed, and picked up his smartphone from the bedside table. He wanted Gorgo to know that this latest composition sketch was for him, and him alone. Gorgo had left an email address at the end of his message, so Victor signed into Outlook and uploaded the file. Never go on internet dates without bringing a friend along. Anyone can pretend to be anyone when they're on the internet. Adults used to parrot such sentiments with insane severity throughout Victor's childhood, but he knew damn well that in 2018, 
Nobody could truly hide behind a web avatar for long. In the 15 years since he'd been first told about the spectacular new thing called the Internet, Victor had seen it change at an exponential rate. It had changed him at an exponential rate. Victor on Twitter was more real than Victor at alternate sound. He knew this, but it didn't afflict him with the kind of dread he imagined it would cause people like his parents. As he knotted his boots and pulled his denim jacket over his shoulders, he reminded himself of several other important facts. First, it wasn't an internet date. And second, he didn't really have any friends he could bring along. And third, Gorgo might not really be named Gorgo in reality, but whoever he was, he had a soul and a personality that meant something to Victor. And that in itself was more than worth the risk. He wedged buds into his ears, and the sounds of his latest composition pulsed through his brain as he walked toward the elevator. He nodded politely at a woman down the hall, but she didn't notice because she was typing something on her android. A woman stepped into the light pulling outside the Starbucks window, smiled at Victor, and extended a hand. Oh, Victor said. Victor? she asked. Yeah, he replied. Sorry, it's just you were expecting a dude. The woman said, it's okay. I guess there's no reason I should have. I, I mean, we've only ever... Hey, it's all right. The person you're hoping to meet isn't a woman, she interrupted. And I'm not the person you're hoping to meet. The chilly wind gusted. Candy wrappers scraped the pavement by their boots. Victor pulled his denim jacket tighter. Oh. The woman's eyes widened, her mouth forming a reassuring smile. But I can take you to the person you're supposed to meet. But, Gorgo Yama, am I pronouncing that right? Victor waited for the woman to nod, then continued. Gorgo Yama said to meet at the Starbucks on Center and 8th. Right, yeah, that's where I come in. I'm here to fill in. Gorgo Yama doesn't like public meetings. Did you drive? My car's parked just up the street. I can take you. Victor's brain paraded imagery from the safety videos of his elementary school days. Don't talk to strangers. Bring a buddy everywhere you go. He saw his dad's long mustache face crumpling into an expression of overblown concern. You never know who you might be talking to on the internet these days, Vic. You've got to be careful. He looked at the woman again. Mid-twenties, maybe early thirties. Dressed in a well-fitted black pea coat that said business casual and wearing an expression that said nothing of concern. In his early twenties, Victor had spent more than a conventional amount of time in prison and halfway houses, and badly lit basements owned by drug-dealing night prowlers, whose names he'd never learned. He knew danger when he saw it, and nothing about this lady matched the profile. A strand of her hair caught wind and flapped wildly in front of her face before she caught it, and tucked it behind her ear. My name's Kara, by the way. Victor tilted a half-nod. Okay, Kara, lead the way. Heartwood Crescent? Victor said with a laugh. Damn, I haven't been this far south since. Kara turned into the cul-de-sac and spoke without turning to face him. It's not what you think. Your friend isn't some rich suburbanite or the child of a pair of rich suburbanites. It's just like a hangout spot. A hangout spot? Do you always drive Gorgoyama's friends to his hangout spot? What, does he not have a car? Kara stopped in front of a boxy green painted house. Well... No, not really. Not really. Victor shook his head. Okay, whatever. He's in there, though? This is the place? Yes, Kara said. This is the place. 
Victor waited for her to remove her key from the ignition, but instead she sat motionless, eyes gazing through the windshield. Lead the way, he said. Oh, you go right ahead, she replied without turning to face him. I've got some errands to run. Victor unbuckled his seatbelt, but remained sitting. What was he going to do, march right up and knock on the door without any explanation? He'd never seen this person's face. Gorgoyama didn't even use a Twitter avatar, settling instead for the default anonymous gray silhouette. Meeting at a Starbucks was one thing, but showing up to a stranger's house completely unannounced? It's okay, Kara said, reaching over to pat his shoulder. Gorgoyama's expecting you. Change of plans tonight. That's why I came to get you. Victor raised an eyebrow. Who are you, exactly? I mean, how do you know him? Just a friend, Kara said, pulling an iPhone from her coat pocket. She glanced at a message on the screen before turning to face Victor. We're very close, Gorgonyama and me. I promised to drive you home later this evening as well. How does, say, ten o'clock sound? Tomorrow was Victor's day off. Time wasn't anywhere near the top of his list of things to worry about. Don't be weird. People have all kinds of friends. Friends do favors for each other. Someone out there really cares about what you're doing, really gets what you're doing, the music you're making. You're going to finally meet that person and relearn what meaningful connection feels like. Okay, he said. Ten it is. He cracked open the door, stepped out, and waved to Kara as she exited the cul-de-sac. He thought something about the moment of truth. He thought something like, Are you sure? He walked up the driveway and paused only a second before wrapping his knuckles on the door. Come in. If Victor hadn't been so tuned into the moment, he might not even have heard the invitation. It sounded like the voice of someone on a television turned to low volume. Even though it was an invitation, his unease doubled down at the prospect of stepping into a stranger's home without the stranger first opening the door for him. Not a stranger, he reminded himself. Within the 21st century's first decade, the internet evolved from a supplementary tool into an omniscient guiding force. Along with that evolution, all rules surrounding social protocol and etiquette, all norms and codes of human relationship, had changed irrevocably. Stranger no longer meant what it used to mean. Neither did friendship. Victor felt closer to Gorgoyama than almost any person he'd ever met in the flesh, remembering that all the sad-eyed suckers and manic booze hounds he used to lurk the streets with, he asked himself, was that what friendship looked like? He opened the door and stepped into an unlit foyer. Moonlight streamed through the sizable front door, illuminating a spiral staircase. He stepped toward the stairs and looked up. Uh, hello? The response came not from above, but from below. Yes, Victor. A pause. I'm down here. Again, the voice signaled something that said television. The words sounded tinny, a bit muffled, like they were being channeled from someplace else. Victor circled around the banister below the stairs and saw another set leading down toward the basement. He'd seen his fair share of horror films, and his slasher-viewing instincts bolted to center stage. Don't go down the stairs. What are you thinking? He leaned forward to get a better glimpse of whatever was down there. Vibrant purple light shone from some hidden room, pulling at the bottom of the stairs. Victor, you coming down? The voice was a little clearer now, easier to make out. Chill out. What are you afraid of? Victor descended the steps. 
Yeah, I'm on my way. By the time he reached the bottom, the light was so bright he had to squint against it. His mind brought him back to his junior high school's graduation dance, the first he'd ever attended. His buddy Joey had snuck a flask of alcoholic swamp water into the gymnasium, a vile mixture of various liquors he'd sampled from his father's cabinet. After a few gulps of that stuff, the colorful lights lining the gym glared into Victor's eyes with brutal, unapologetic brightness. Flashes of red, green, and purple speckled behind his eyelids when he tried to shut it out. Finally, he'd ran behind the curtain of the gym's stage and puked what felt like a gallon of acidic liquid all over the floor. Thankfully, Victor was sober tonight, but that didn't stop his brain from making an unpleasant mental connection anyway. He shielded his eyes with his hand. Gorgo, where are you? Five seconds passed. That light's really bright, man. He stepped further into the glow, which somehow seemed to brighten even more. I'm sorry, Victor, said that radio channel voice somewhere nearby. I'll change the settings. The purple blinked out, and for a moment Victor stood in the silent darkness, wondering if he really was about to act out a role in his own personal slasher movie. Then the room filled with a deep but subdued blue, like the bioluminescent glow of some aquatic organism. And with the change in lights came the purring sound of wheels and hardwood. Victor moved impulsively toward the noise. Gorgo? That you? He stopped in his tracks when his visitor emerged into the spotlight. At first he thought he was simply looking at a computer monitor wired up to some complex wheeled contraption. But his eyes traced the tangle of cords and wires up the device's chrome legs and saw that they were nestled into something behind the monitor. He tilted his head to get a better look, and immediately wished he hadn't. Even the calming oceanic light couldn't soften the grotesquerie before him. It was something like an overgrown brain, with gill-like gashes gleaming along both sides. As its moist surface throbbed with unnatural breath, affixed wires twitched and hissed. Victor, said that voice, projected from the meat-clotted monitor's speakers. Don't be afraid. You're one of the few. Victor gave an exclamation as unimaginative as it was inevitable. What the fuck? He stumbled backward, delirious from shock and terror, but he didn't make it far. His muscles seized, alight with mysterious electric shock. Gorgoyama sped toward him, wheels growling like ground-burrowing animals. The monitor screen flashed alive to reveal a red goat head traced along an inverted pentagram. Don't freak out, please. Victor willed his mouth into motion, struggling to form words. What, what, what the fuck are you? Please. The pentagram goat stared with indifferent eyes. I'm your friend. Victor wanted to scream help at the top of his lungs, but all he managed was another useless question. How are you doing this? It's a precaution. Please don't take it personally. I've got this whole place hooked up to my own preferences. A great big Bluetooth activated home. Only with a few uniquely techno-pagan features. Then it laughed. And somehow that sound was worse than anything else. Guttural, canned, hideously metallic. The monitor leeching brain spritz pungent juice, as if overexcited. Once it calmed, it spoke again. You don't have to worry anymore. No more thoughts of angst and inadequacy and ennui. No more body, Victor. 
once and for all, you can connect and compose and simply be. What the fuck? Please, just listen. I've written something that's inspired by your latest composition. I'm going to have to increase the charge if you won't listen, Victor. Don't make me do that. Please. Suddenly, wall-mounted speakers roared to life with a complex, electro-classical fusion, unlike anything Victor had ever heard. He'd always been adventurous in his listening habits, but the din that filled this space sounded creepily self-producing, like an atomic process rendered audible. Energized, frenetic, vibrant, made entirely of irrational force. He would be lying if he said it wasn't profoundly moving. I'm lonely, Victor. The hell with it, I'll be honest. After so many years of being this way, after losing my beautiful wife so young, I just want to enjoy the company of a real friend. Call me selfish. It's the saintness in me, I guess. The music coursed through Victor's head and body, somehow even stronger than the invisible electric charge. Tears bulged in the corner of his eyes and trickled down his unmoving face. As he succumbed to the music's effects, his memory strayed back to his first, really clean, adolescent high. Some rich kid's house party when he'd snorted that first line of cocaine and had speared his bourbon-soaked skull like a crystalline shot of libido. As he remembered that booze and coke sensation, Gorgo's self-producing music matched his tempo. It swelled into something triumphant, propelled by alien but palpable actualization. Strange? Horrifying, even. Sure. But what was his life if not a steady, all-too-sober shuffle toward a meaningless death? And what could possibly be more horrifying than that? Your life is scary. Your life is pathetic, he told himself. Not Gorgoyama. You know this individual. You spent so much time interacting with him. You know he has some wisdom. More tears crawled down his cheeks. So give him a chance. Okay, he said, just loud enough to be heard over the music. What, what do you want? Wait, wait, a woman said. Victor recognized the voice. Kara. I want to tell him too, she added. Her fingers trailed Victor's pain-paralyzed back as she circled around to face him. She tucked her hands behind her head, rummaging and pulling. She found some hidden seam and tugged, causing her body to slump. Like a deflating blow-up doll, her limbs and torso shrunk and shriveled until they collapsed in a heap on the floor. Moments later, a gorgo-like brain squelched out from under the pile, its stem acting as a kind of repulsive crutch. Victor mouthed silent blasphemy. Care is stronger than me, Victor, but sooner or later... She'll need to stick with the same kind of permanent setup that I've got, said Gorgoyama. We kind of look out for each other. All we need is to find the right people to keep us moving along. The house is a network. I like to think of it as a sort of future commune. We want you to be a part of it. Sure, it's a trade-off. But so what? Isn't death as well? Isn't sobriety? What do you mean by that? Victor asked. Please, Victor. If anyone understands your music, it's me. You're expressing something real. 
You're not one of them. You're an immortal. You're like me. The carabrain slithered its way up another metallic fixture. Her screen flashed its own pentagram to life. This one black on a red background. Like us, she said. We're experiencing a high greater than anything you could ever imagine. Pure sensory existence. The two trolleys moved toward Victor with mechanical synchronicity. So what will it be? Gorgo asked. Care to take the leap? The electrical charge disappeared, allowing Victor to stretch his limbs, allowing him to run if he wanted. He didn't run. He wiped the tears with the backs of his wrists, and he lowered his head. Is that a nod I see? He didn't reply. He thought of Gorgo and Kara's hideous appearances, wet lumps of brain matter hooked permanently to machines, and he thought of Gorgo's awful laugh. And what? That's more horrific than letting your body break down and rot slowly into worm food, forgotten forever within a month of your passing? Living forever. Kara's computer-filtered voice intruded his thoughts. Hi, forever. So I ask you again, Gorgo said. Is that a nod, I see? It came tumbling out of Victor's mouth before he could take the chance to reconsider. Yes, I think it is. Well then, follow us, said Gorgoyama. Both trolleys whirled around and cruised toward the source of that jalo bright glow, now melting aquatic tones back into luminous purple. As the computer carts moved, the wall speakers exploded back to life with a composition too great to be produced by the body-chained brains of humans. To Victor, it sounded like the very process of birth, rendered audible and visceral and true. Something stirred inside of him, and he was not afraid as he followed his new friends into the light. That was Mike Thorne's At Gorgoyama 2013, as read by Spencer Desparty. Spencer Desparty is a poet and musician who lives in Phoenix, Arizona, with his wife and two-year-old whirlwind of a son. He is narrated for Pseudopod, Starship Sofa, and Escape Artists. You can find his music at soundcloud.com slash Thank you, Spencer. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Next up is part two of Arthur Machen's The Great God Pan. Arthur Machen was a Welsh author and mystic of the 1890s and early 20th century. He's best known for his influential supernatural fantasy and horror fiction. His novella, The Great God Pan, which we'll hear part two of tonight, has garnered a reputation as a classic of horror, with Stephen King describing it as maybe the best horror story in the English language. Children of the night, listen with me to the second installment of Arthur Machen's The Great God Pan. Three, the City of Resurrections. Herbert, good God, is it possible? Yes, my name's Herbert. I think I know your face, too, but I don't remember your name. My memory is very queer. Don't you recollect Villiers of Wadham? So it is, so it is. I beg your pardon, Villiers. I didn't think I was begging of an old college friend. Good night. My dear fellow, this haste is unnecessary. My rooms are close by, but we won't go there just yet. Suppose we walk up Shaftesbury Avenue a little way. But how in heaven's name have you come to this pass, Herbert? It's a long story, Villiers, and a strange one, too. But you can hear it if you like. Come on, then. Take my arm. You don't seem very strong. The ill-assorted pair moved slowly up Rupert Street, the one in dirty, evil-looking rags and the other attired in the regulation uniform of a man about town, trim, glossy, and eminently well-to-do. Villiers had emerged from his restaurant after an excellent dinner of many courses, assisted by an ingratiating little flask of Chianti and, in that frame of mind which was with him almost chronic, had delayed a moment by the door, peering round in the dimly lighted street in search of those mysterious incidents and persons with which the streets of London teem in every quarter and every hour. Villiers prided himself as a practiced explorer of such obscure mazes and byways of London life and, in this unprofitable pursuit, he displayed an assiduity which was worthy of more serious employment. Thus he stood at the lamp-post, surveying the passers-by with undisguised curiosity, 
and with that gravity known only to the systematic diner, had just enunciated in his mind the formula. London has been called the City of Encounters. It is more than that. It is the City of Resurrections. When these reflections were suddenly interrupted by a piteous whine at his elbow and a deplorable appeal for alms, he looked around in some irritation and, with a sudden shock, found himself confronted with the embodied proof of his somewhat stilted fancies. There, close beside him, his face altered and disfigured by poverty and disgrace, his body barely covered by greasy, ill-fitting rags, stood his old friend, Charles Herbert, who had matriculated on the same day as himself, with whom he had been merry and wise for twelve revolving terms. Different occupations and varying interests had interrupted the friendship, and it was six years since Villiers had seen Herbert, and now he looked upon this wreck of a man with grief and dismay, mingled with a certain inquisitiveness as to what dreary chain of circumstances had dragged him down to such a doleful pass. Villiers felt together with compassion, all the relish of the amateur and mysteries, and congratulated himself on his leisurely speculations outside the restaurant. They walked on in silence for some time. More than one passerby stared in astonishment at the unaccustomed spectacle of a well-dressed man with an unmistakable beggar hanging onto his arm, and, observing this, Villiers led the way to an obscure street in Soho. Here he repeated his question. How on earth has it happened, Herbert? I always understood you would succeed to an excellent position in Dorsetshire. Did your father disinherit you? Surely not. No, Villiers. I came into all the property at my poor father's death. He died a year after I left Oxford. He was a very good father to me, and I mourned his death sincerely enough. But you know what young men are. A few months later I came up to town and went a good deal into society. Of course, I had excellent introductions, and I managed to enjoy myself very much in a harmless sort of way. I played a little certainly, but never for heavy stakes and the few bets I made on races brought me in money. Only a few pounds, you know, but enough to pay for cigars and such petty pleasures. It was in my second season that the tide turned. Of course, you have heard of my marriage? No, I never heard anything about it. Yes, I married Villiers. I married a girl a girl of the most wonderful and the most strange beauty, at the house of some people whom I knew. I cannot tell you her age. I never knew it, but, so far as I can guess, I should think she must have been about nineteen when I made her acquaintance. My friends had come to know her at Florence. She told them she was an orphan, the child of an English father and an Italian mother, and she charmed them as she charmed me. The first time I saw her was at an evening party. I was standing by the door talking to a friend, 
when suddenly, above the hum and babble of conversation, I heard a voice which seemed to thrill to my heart. She was singing an Italian song. I was introduced to her that evening, and in three months I married Helen. Villiers, that woman, if I can call her woman, corrupted my soul. The night of the wedding, I found myself sitting in her bedroom in the hotel, listening to her talk. She was sitting up in bed, and I listened to her as she spoke in her beautiful voice, spoke of things which, even now, I would not dare whisper in the blackest night, though I stood in the midst of a wilderness. You, Villiers, you may think you know life and London and what goes on day and night in this dreadful city. For all I can say, you may have heard the talk of the vilest, but I tell you, you can have no conception of what I know. Not in your most fantastic, hideous dreams can you have imaged forth the faintest shadow of what I have heard and seen. Yes, seen. I have seen the incredible, such horrors that even I myself sometimes stop in the middle of the street and ask whether it is possible for a man to behold such things and live. In a year, Villiers, I was a ruined man in body and soul, in body and soul. But your property, Herbert, you had land in Dorset. I sold it all, the fields and woods, the dear old house, everything. And the money? She took it all from me. And then you left? Yes. She disappeared one night. I don't know where she went, but I am sure if I saw her again, it would kill me. The rest of my story is no interest. Sordid misery, that is all. You may think, Villiers, that I have exaggerated and talked for effect, but I have not told you half. I could tell you certain things which would convince you, but you would never know a happy day again. You would pass the rest of your life, as I pass mine, a haunted man, a man who has seen hell. Villiers took the unfortunate man to his rooms and gave him a meal. Herbert could eat little and scarcely touched the glass of wine set before him. He sat moody and silent by the fire and seemed relieved when Villiers sent him away with a small present of money. By the way, Herbert said Villiers as they parted at the door. What was your wife's name? You said Helen, I think. Helen what? The name she passed under when I met her was Helen Vaughan, but what her real name was I can't say. I don't think she had a name. No, no, not in that sense. Only human beings have names, Villiers. I can't say any more. Goodbye. Yes, I will not fail to call if I see any way in which you can help me. Good night. The man went out into the bitter night, 
and Villiers returned to his fireside. There was something about Herbert which shook him inexpressibly. Not his poor rags, nor the marks which poverty had set upon his face, but rather an indefinite terror which hung about him like a mist. He had acknowledged that he himself was not devoid of blame. The woman, he had avowed, had corrupted him body and soul. And Villiers felt that this man, once his friend, had been an actor in scenes evil beyond the power of words. His story needed no confirmation. He himself was the embodied proof of it. Villiers mused curiously over the story he had heard, and wondered whether he had heard both the first and the last of it. No, he thought, certainly not the last. Probably only the beginning. A case like this is like a nest of Chinese boxes. You open one after the other and find a quainter workmanship in every box. Most likely poor Herbert is merely one of the outside boxes. There are stranger ones to follow. Villiers could not take his mind away from Herbert and his story, which seemed to grow wilder as the night wore on. The fire seemed to burn low, and the chilly air of the morning crept into the room. Villiers got up with a glance over his shoulder and, shivering slightly, went to bed. A few days later, he saw at his club a gentleman of his acquaintance, named Austin, who was famous for his intimate knowledge of London life, both in its tenebrous and luminous phases. Villiers, still full of his encounter in Soho and its consequences, thought Austin might possibly be able to shed some light on Herbert's story. And so, after some casual talk, he suddenly put the question, Do you happen to know anything of a man named Herbert? Charles Herbert? Austin turned round sharply and stared at Villiers with some astonishment. Charles Herbert? Weren't you in town three years ago? No, and you have not heard of the Paul Street case. It caused a good deal of sensation at the time. What was the case? Well, a gentleman, man of very good position, was found dead, stark dead, in the area of a certain house in Paul Street, off Tottenham Court Road. Of course, the police did not make the discovery. If you happen to be sitting up all night and have a light in your window, the constable will ring the bell. But if you happen to be lying dead in somebody's area, you will be left alone. In this instance, as in many others, the alarm was raised by some kind of vagabond. I don't mean a common tramp or a public house loafer, but a gentleman whose business, or pleasure, or both, made him a spectator of the London streets at five o'clock in the morning. This individual was, as he said, going home. It did not appear whence or whither and had occasion to pass through Paul Street between 4 and 5 a.m. Something rather caught his eye at number 20. He said, absurdly enough, that the house had the most unpleasant physiognomy he had ever observed. But at any rate, he glanced down the area and was a good deal astonished to see a man lying on the stones, his limbs all huddled together and his face turned up. Our gentleman thought his face looked peculiarly ghastly, and so set off at a run in search of the nearest policeman. 
The constable was at first inclined to treat the matter lightly, suspecting common drunkenness. However, he came, and after looking at the man's face, changed his tone quickly enough. The early bird who had picked up this fine worm was sent off for a doctor, and the policeman rang and knocked at the door till a slatternly servant girl came down, looking more than half asleep. The constable pointed out the contents of the area to the maid, who screamed loudly enough to wake up the street. She knew nothing of the man, had never seen him at the house, and so forth. Meanwhile, the original discoverer had come back with a medical man, and the next thing was to get into the area. The gate was open, so the whole quartet stumped down the steps. The doctor hardly needed a moment's examination. He said the poor fellow had been dead for several hours, and it was then the case began to get interesting. The dead man had not been robbed, and in one of his pockets were papers identifying him as, well, as a man of good family and means, a favorite in society, and nobody's enemy, as far as could be known. I don't give his name, Villiers, because it has nothing to do with the story, and because it's no good raking up these affairs about the dead when there are no relations living. The next curious point was the medical man couldn't agree as to how he met his death. There were some slight bruises on his shoulders, but they were so slight that it looked as if he had been pushed roughly out of the kitchen door, and not thrown over the railing from the street or even dragged down the steps. But there were positively no other marks of violence about him, certainly none that would account for his death. And when they came to the autopsy, there wasn't a trace of poison of any kind. Of course, the police wanted to know all about the people of Number 20. And here again, so I have heard from private sources, one or two other very curious points came out. It appears that the occupants of the house were a Mr. and Mrs. Charles Herbert. He was said to be a landed proprietor, though it struck most people that Paul Street was not exactly the place to look for country gentry. As for Mrs. Herbert, nobody seemed to know who or what she was, and, between ourselves, I fancy the divers, after her history, found themselves in rather strange waters. Of course, they both denied knowing anything about the deceased, and in default of any evidence against them, they were discharged. But some very odd things came out about them. Though it was between five and six in the morning when the dead man was removed, a large crowd had collected, and several of the neighbors ran to see what was going on. They were pretty free with their comments, by all accounts, and from these it appeared that number twenty was in very bad odor in Paul Street. The detectives tried to trace down these rumors to some solid foundation of fact, but could not get hold of anything. People shook their heads and raised their eyebrows, and thought the Herberts rather queer, would rather not be seen going into their house, and so on. But there was nothing tangible. The authorities were morally certain the man met his death in some way or another in the house, and was thrown out by the kitchen door. But they couldn't prove it, and the absence of any indications of violence or poisoning left them helpless. An odd case, wasn't it? But curiously enough, there's something more than I haven't told you. 
I happened to know one of the doctors who was consulted as to the cause of death, and some time after the inquest I met him, and I asked him about it. Do you really mean to tell me, I said, that you were baffled by the case, that you actually don't know what the man died of? Pardon me, he replied. I know perfectly well what caused death. Blank died of fright, of sheer, awful terror. I never saw features so hideously contorted in the entire course of my practice, and I have seen the faces of a whole host of dead. The doctor was usually a cool customer enough, and a certain vehemence in his manner struck me. I couldn't get anything more out of him. I suppose the Treasury didn't see their way to prosecuting the Herberts for frightening a man to death. At any rate, nothing was done, and the case dropped out of men's minds. Do you happen to know anything about Herbert? Well, replied Villiers, he was an old college friend of mine. You don't say so. Have you ever seen his wife? No, I haven't. I have lost sight of Herbert for many years. It's queer, isn't it? Parting with a man at the college gate or at Paddington, seeing nothing of him for years, and then finding him pop up his head in such an odd place. I should like to have seen Mrs. Herbert. People said extraordinary things about her. What sort of things? Well, I hardly know how to tell you. Everyone who saw her at the police court said that she was at once the most beautiful and the most repulsive they had ever set eyes on. I've spoken to a man who saw her, and I assure you he positively shuddered as he tried to describe the woman. But he couldn't tell why. She seems to have been a sort of enigma, and I expect if that one dead man could have told tales, he would have told some uncommonly queer ones. And there you are again in another puzzle. What could a respectable country gentleman like Mr. Blank, we'll call him that if you don't mind, want in such a very queer house as number 20? It's altogether a very odd case, isn't it? It is indeed, Austin, an extraordinary case. I didn't think that when I asked you about my old friend I should strike on such strange metal. But I must be off. Good day. Villiers went away, thinking of his own conceit of the Chinese boxes. Here was quaint workmanship indeed. 4. The Discovery in Paul Street a few months after Villiers' meeting with Herbert, Mr. Clark was sitting, as usual, by his after-dinner hearth, resolutely guarding his fancies from wandering in the direction of the Bureau. For more than a week, he had succeeded in keeping away from the memoirs, and he cherished hopes of a complete self-reformation. But, in spite of his endeavors, he could not hush the wonder and the strange curiosity that the last case he had written down had excited within him. He had put the case, or rather the outline of it, conjecturally to a scientific friend, who shook his head and thought Clark getting queer. And on this particular evening, Clark was making an effort to rationalize the story, when a sudden knock at the door roused him from his meditations. Mr. Villiers to see you, sir. Dear me. Villiers, it is very kind of you to look me up. I have not seen you for many months. I should think nearly a year. 
Come in, come in. And how are you, Villiers? Want any advice about investments? No, thanks. I fancy everything I have in that way is pretty safe. No, Clark. I've really come to consult you about a rather curious matter that has been brought under my notice of late. I am afraid you will think it all rather absurd when I tell my tale. I sometimes think so myself, and that's just what I made up my mind to come to you, as I know you're a practical man. Mr. Villiers was ignorant of the memoirs to prove the existence of the devil. Well, Villiers, I shall be happy to give you my advice to the best of my ability. What is the nature of the case? It's an extraordinary thing altogether. You know my ways. I always keep my eyes open in the streets, and in my time I have chanced upon some queer customers. And queer cases, too. But this, I think, beats all. I was coming out of a restaurant one nasty winter night about three months ago. I had had a capital dinner and a good bottle of Chianti, and I stood for a moment on the pavement, thinking what a mystery there is about London streets and the companies that pass along them. A bottle of red wine encourages these fancies, Clark, and I dare say I should have thought a page of small type but I was cut short by a beggar who had come behind me and was making the usual appeals. Of course I looked round, and this beggar turned out to be what was left of an old friend of mine, a man named Herbert. I asked him how he had come to such a wretched pass, and he told me. We walked up and down one of those long and dark Soho streets, and there I listened to his story. He said he had married a beautiful girl, some years younger than himself, and, as he put it, she had corrupted him body and soul. He wouldn't go into details. He said he dare not, that what he had seen and heard haunted him by night and day. And when I looked at his face, I knew he was speaking the truth. There was something about this man that made me shiver. I don't know why, but it was there. I gave him a little money and sent him away. I assure you that when he was gone, I gasped for breath. His presence seemed to chill one's blood. Isn't this all just a little fanciful, Villiers? I suppose the poor fellow had made an imprudent marriage, and in plain English gone to the bad. Well, listen to this. Villiers told Clark the story he had heard from Austin. You see he concluded. There can be but little doubt that this Mr. Blank, whoever he was, died of sheer terror. He saw something so awful, so terrible, that it cut short his life. And what he saw, he most certainly saw in that house, which, somehow or other, had got a bad name in the neighborhood. I had the curiosity to go and look at the place for myself. It's a saddening kind of street. The houses are old enough to be mean and dreary, but not old enough to be quaint. As far as I could see, most of them are let in lodgings, furnished and unfurnished, and almost every door has three bells to it. Here and there the ground floors have been made into shops of the commonest kind. It's a dismal street in every way. I found number twenty was to let— and I went to the agents, and I got the key. 
Of course, I should have heard nothing of the Herberts in that quarter, but I asked the man, fair and square, how long they had left the house, and whether there had been other tenants in the meanwhile. He looked at me queerly for a minute, and told me the Herberts had left immediately after the unpleasantness, as he called it, and since then the house had been empty. Mr. Villiers paused for a moment. I have always been rather fond of going over empty houses. There's a sort of fascination about the desolate empty rooms, with the nails sticking in the walls and the dust thick upon the window sills. But I didn't enjoy going over number 20, Paul Street. I had hardly put my foot inside the passage when I noticed a queer, heavy feeling about the air in the house. Of course, all empty houses are stuffy and so forth, but this was something quite different. I can't describe it to you, but it seemed to stop the breath. I went into the front room and back room and the kitchens downstairs. They were all dirty and dusty enough, as you would expect, but there was something strange about them all. I couldn't define it to you. I only know I felt queer. It was one of the rooms on the first floor, though, that was the worst. It was a largest room, and once on a time the paper must have been cheerful enough. But when I saw it, paint, paper, and everything were most doleful. But the room was full of horror. I felt my teeth grinding as I put my hand on the door, and when I went in, I thought I should have fallen fainting to the floor. However, I pulled myself together and stood against the end wall, wondering what on earth there could be about the room to make my limbs tremble and my heart beat as if I were at the hour of death. In one corner there was a pile of newspaper littered on the floor, and I began looking at them. They were papers of three or four years ago, some of them half-torn and some crumpled as if they had been used for packaging. I turned the whole pile over and amidst them I found a curious drawing. I will show it to you presently. But I couldn't stay in the room. I felt it was overpowering me. I was thankful to come out, safe and sound, into the open air. People stared at me as I walked along the street, and one man said I was drunk. I was staggering about from one side of the pavement to the other, and it was as much as I could do to take the key back to the agent and get home. I was in bed for a week, suffering from what my doctor called nervous shock and exhaustion. One of those days, I was reading the evening paper and happened to notice a paragraph headed, Starved to Death. It was the usual style of thing, a model lodging house in Marylebone, a door locked for several days, and a dead man in his chair when they broke in. The deceased, said the paragraph, was known as Charles Herbert, and is believed to have been once a prosperous country gentleman. His name was familiar to the public three years ago in connection with the mysterious death in Paul Street, Tottenham Court Road, the deceased being the tenant of the house number 20, in the area of which a gentleman of good position was found dead under circumstances not devoid of suspicion. A tragic ending, wasn't it? But after all, if what he told me were true, which I am sure it was, the man's life was all a tragedy, and a tragedy of a stranger sort than they put on the boards. And that is the story, is it?
said Clark musingly. Yes, that is the story. Well, really, Villiers, I scarcely know what to say about it. There are no doubt circumstances in the case which seem peculiar. The finding of the dead man in the area of Herbert's house, for example, and the extraordinary opinion of the physician as to the cause of death. But after all, it is conceivable that the facts may be explained in a straightforward manner. As to your own sensations when you went to see the house, I would suggest that they were due to vivid imagination. You must have been brooding in a semi-conscious way over what you had heard. I don't see what more can be said or done in the matter. You evidently think there is a mystery of some kind, but Herbert is dead. Where, then, do you propose to look? I propose to look for the woman, the woman whom he married. She is the mystery. The two men sat silent by the fireside, Clark secretly congratulating himself on having successfully kept up the character of advocate of the commonplace, and Villiers wrapped in his gloomy fancies. I think I will have a cigarette, he said at last, and put his hand in his pocket to feel for the cigarette case. Ah, he said, starting slightly, I forgot, I have something to show you. You remember me saying that I had found a rather curious sketch amongst the pile of old newspapers at the house in Paul Street. Here it is. Villiers drew out a small, thin parcel from his pocket. It was covered with brown paper and secured with string, and the knots were troublesome. In spite of himself, Clark felt inquisitive. He bent forward on his chair as Villiers painfully undid the string and unfolded the outer covering. Inside was a second wrapping of tissue, and Villiers took it off and handed the small piece of paper to Clark without a word. There was dead silence in the room for five minutes or more. The two men sat so still that they could hear the ticking of the tall, old-fashioned clock that stood outside in the hall and in the mind of one of them the slow monotony of sound woke up a far, far memory. He was looking intently at the small pen-and-ink sketch of the woman's head. It had evidently been drawn with great care, and by a true artist, for the woman's soul looked out of the eyes, and the lips were parted with a strange smile. Clark gazed still at the face. It brought to his memory one summer evening long ago. He saw again the long, lovely valley, the river winding between the hills, the meadows and the cornfields, the dull red sun and the cold white mist rising from the water. He heard a voice speaking to him across the waves of many years and saying, Clark, Mary will see the god Pan. And then he was standing in the grim room beside the doctor, listening to the heavy ticking of the clock, waiting and watching, watching the figure lying on the green chair beneath the lamplight. Mary rose up, and he looked into her eyes, and his heart grew cold within him. Who is this woman, he said at last. His voice was dry and hoarse. 
This is the woman who Herbert married. Clark looked again at the sketch. It was not Mary, after all. There certainly was Mary's face, but there was something else, something he had not seen on Mary's features when the white-clad girl entered the laboratory with the doctor, nor at her terrible awakening, nor when she lay grinning on the bed. Whatever it was, the glance that came from those eyes, the smile on the full lips, or the expression of the whole face, Clark shuddered before it at his inmost soul and thought unconsciously of Dr. Phillips' words. The most vivid presentment of evil I have ever seen. He turned the paper over mechanically in his hand and glanced at the back. Good God! Clark, what is the matter? You are as white as death! Villiers had started wildly from his chair as Clark fell back with a groan and let the paper drop from his hands. I don't feel very well, Villiers. I am subject to these attacks. Pour me out a little wine. Thanks, that will do. I shall feel better in a few minutes. Villiers picked up the fallen sketch and turned it over as Clark had done. You saw that? he said. That's how I identified it as being a portrait of Herbert's wife, or I should say his widow. How do you feel now? Better, thanks. It was only a passing faintness. I don't think I quite got your meaning. What did you say enabled you to identify the picture? This word, Helen, was written on the back. Didn't I tell you her name was Helen? Yes, Helen Vaughn. Clark groaned. There could be no shadow of doubt. Now, don't you agree with me, said Villiers, that in the story I have told you tonight, and in the part this woman plays in it, there are some very strange points? Yes, Villiers, Clark muttered. It is a strange story indeed. A strange story indeed. You must give me time to think it over. I may be able to help you, or I may not. Must you be going now? Well, good night, Villiers. Good night. Come and see me in the course of a week. That was part two of Arthur Machen's The Great God Pan, as read by me. Link to my personal page is in the show notes. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. Consider supporting our podcast on Patreon via the link in the show notes, and like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Our show is produced by editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and myself, Drew Sebastini. Theme music by Diane Severson and website by Josh Lightsey. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we cloud your mind.
with more Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.